listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. If you'd like to follow along, it's on page 853 in the Pew Bible. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all my income, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Thanks, Bobby. Good morning, everyone. So it really is great to be back with you today. I was on vacation last weekend. My wife and I took a little um, belated anniversary trip to New York City, and we had a blast. Um, I really love it here in Brockport. This is easily the nicest place I've ever lived. But deep down, I'm a city person, you know? I just like the crowds and the noise and the smell of raw sewage, you know? That, <clears throat> that stuff about cities that like puts most people on edge just makes me feel at home. So. It was great. Uh, we had some fantastic food. We went to the opera. We went to the 9-11 memorial. Um, the kids were with their grandparents. So it really was, it really was a blast. Um, but it is great uh, to be back with you all today and to be diving into God's word together. Um, let's pray before we get started. God, we ask that you'd be with us this morning. Open our minds, our ears, and our hearts to whatever it is you'd have to disclose to us, Lord. Pray that you would um, quiet our minds, still any restlessness, help us to focus on you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So for the past few months, um, we've been working our way through the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and you guys, we're almost done. Like, we're almost through it all. There's only like three more parables in the entire Gospel. So by Thanksgiving... Um, you're going to know the ins and outs of just about every parable in the Gospel of Luke, which means that when you're going around the Thanksgiving table saying what you're thankful for, you already have your thing. You're welcome. Now, parables are these metaphorical stories Jesus tells that disclose, like, deeper truths about God, what it is to follow God, to be a disciple of Jesus in the world. And we've touched on this before, but a lot of these parables are pretty challenging. Like, Jesus is being intentionally provocative, shocking, and sometimes even offensive in some of these stories. And he does that to destabilize his listeners, to kind of jar them loose and open their imaginations and our imaginations to new possibilities, 
new ways of seeing the world and our place in it as God's people. Uh, About a month or so ago, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is this story where Jesus takes a Samaritan, one of the hated enemies of God's people, and he makes him the hero. He elevates the Samaritan as an example of neighborly love and righteousness. That's shocking. There's also a story like the prodigal son about this ungrateful kid who disrespects his father, brings shame to his family, only to be forgiven and welcome home. These are shocking stories, and this one is one of them. The Pharisee and the tax collector is very provocative, but in order to see that, we kind of have to unlearn a bit of what we have learned about Pharisees and tax collectors. So let's do that. First thing I want to do is a little word association. So this is going to be participatory. I'm going to be encouraging you to shout out. So I'm getting you ready, because I know that's not a normal thing we do here. Um, But let's do some word association. When I say the word Pharisee, what are some words that come to mind? Just shout it out. Elite. What was over here? Lawyer. Lawyer. Yeah. Even worse than Pharisee. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. What were some of the others? Overly zealous. Self righteous. Rules. Yeah. Laws. A lot of negative stuff, right? We tend to associate Pharisees with negative things hypocrites, judgmental, legalistic. And that's because we've been taught, Christians have been taught to view Pharisees as the bad guys. They're the hypocrites, legalistic, basically the worst of the worst of organized religion is the Pharisees. And in the Gospels, we see the Pharisees are often the bad guys. They're challenging Jesus, testing him, trying to trip him up. When I was a teenager, like in high school, um, we even had this friend in our friend group who was a little judgmental, and we used to call her the Pharisee which is pretty messed up. But that speaks to just how negative Christian views of Pharisees are. We use their name, we use their title as a slur. If we look at the Gospels a bit more closely, though, we're going to see that their depiction of Pharisees is a bit more complex. Jesus is often seen eating at the house of Pharisees. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't typically eat with people I don't like. Maybe you do, and no judgment. (laughs) But Jesus is hanging out with Pharisees all the time. He's even got some Pharisees among his closest followers. Paul was a Pharisee. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. When Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, the place where he's going to be executed, put to death, it's the Pharisees who are constantly warning him, saying, what are you doing? Don't go to Jerusalem. Herod wants to kill you. So the Gospels give us actually a pretty complex view of Pharisees. Some of them were hypocrites and self-righteous and judgmental, and some of them were among Jesus' closest friends. To give you a little historical background on this, um, the Pharisees were a sect within Judaism around the time of Jesus, and in their day, the Pharisees were actually the liberals. They were the progressives of first century Judaism. What the Pharisees did is they took Judaism, they took this religion that was centered around the temple establishment and the priesthood, a lot of stuff that was very corrupt at the time, and they re-centered it on the home. You can go to a priest 
and have them pray for you. You can go to the temple and receive religious goods and services, usually at a fee. But the Pharisees taught that the head of each household was like a priest in their own home. You might go to the temple once or twice a year to give a sacrifice, have a sacred meal, but the Pharisees believed that any time a family sat down for dinner together, that was a sacred meal. Every meal is sacred. Every space is holy. The Pharisees also emphasized that anyone could pursue holiness and follow the law. You didn't have to be a priest. You didn't need the temple establishment. All you did was follow Torah and you were good, which we see as very legalistic, but back then that was very democratizing and empowering. If you were like a regular person uh, who needed advice or needed help or guidance or if there's someone in the community who was in trouble, you're not going to go all the way to the temple and talk to some priest you didn't know who'd been appointed by the Romans. You went to your local synagogue and you got help from the Pharisees. They were in the trenches with the people. So when Jesus' audience hears the word Pharisee, they're not thinking hypocrite and legalistic. They're thinking hero. The Pharisees are the good guys. They're the holy ones, the advocates for the people, the ones working for truth, justice, and equality. But tax collectors, well, that's entirely different. The tax collectors were traitors. Any negative associations you have about like taxes today or like bill collectors today, take that and amplify that by about a thousand. Because the tax collectors were Jews who were collecting taxes for the Romans. Remember, at this time of history, Jesus' people are occupied by Rome. They're living under the occupation of a foreign adversary. This would be like, <clears throat> imagine, imagine if like Brockport was invaded tomorrow for some reason. Uh, imagine if like maybe the Canadians got a little antsy and they swooped down into Brockport and took over. Um, destroy most of the buildings. They kill a bunch of people. Institute martial law. And then imagine if someone in your community, maybe a neighbor, maybe a family member, got a job collecting taxes for our new Canadian overlords. That wouldn't be cool, right? Like, that would probably get you disinvited from, like, family gatherings and things like that. That would not be okay. That's the tax collectors. They're traitors, sellouts, people who would make a profit off the suffering of their own So when Jesus opens this parable with two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector, that statement is just loaded. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a good guy, one a bad guy, one a hero, one a villain, one a respected leader, teacher, pastor, the other a sellout. Do you feel the tension just with a sentence like that? Can you feel that? Seeing some nodding. Good. Good. You can, I'm just going to assume you can feel that. I can feel that. 
Let's see what happens next. Let's dive into the scenario and see what happens. So verse 11, it'll be on the screen. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. Pause for a second. If you're in the audience hearing Jesus tell this story, at that time, you probably see nothing wrong with this prayer. You probably even agree with it to some point. Right? Like, this guy's a Pharisee, so right away he's a good guy. He's generous, that's good. He fasts regularly, that's admirable. And he gives glory to God. He gives God the credit for his holiness. It's not him. God is the one who made him a Pharisee and not an adulterer or a thief or even worse, a tax collector. One of those people. Thank God I'm not like that guy. And that's where the twist comes. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then the punchline, which would have come like a punch in the gut, I think. I tell you the truth. This man, the tax collector, went home justified rather than the Pharisee. Could you imagine the jaws on the floor at a story like this? The shock and the horror of Jesus' audience. There's actually a little bit of ambiguity in this last line too, which makes the story even more interesting. That word that's translated rather than, it's, it's one word in the Greek, it's the Greek word par. And par is a contronym, that's one of those tricky words that can also mean it's opposite. So if we think about a word like rent, Rent can also mean it's opposite. If I say I rent my house, that could mean I rent a house from someone else, or that could mean I own a house and I rent it out. It works both ways. Cleave is another good one, another contronym. If you cleave a piece of meat, you cut it off from the bone, but if you cleave a husband and wife, you bring them together, cleave and cleave. Par works like that. It can mean instead of, rather than, separate from, but it can also mean alongside of, along with, in addition to. So we could read this last line two ways. It's ambiguous. The tax collector went home justified instead of the Pharisee, or the tax collector went home justified alongside of the Pharisee, and honestly, I'm not sure which would be worse. I'm not sure which of these would be more offensive to Jesus' audience. Maybe that's why his wording leaves it vague. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, there are a lot of lessons we could take from a story like this. One would probably be, um, be careful who your heroes are. Be careful who you raise up and who you treat as a villain. But on a much deeper and more fundamental level, I think there's an important lesson to be learned in this story about judgment and our tendency to judge everything. By show of hands, how many of us, like when when Bobby first read this and you heard Pharisee, how many of us, you don't have to be embarrassed by this, 
right away you thought, oh, Pharisees. I know who the Pharisees are today. I know the Pharisees, right? Yeah. There's one sitting right down the pew from me. Anybody? We look around nervously. Yeah. That's what we always do with these stories. We start filling in the gaps. I know who the Pharisees are. People who go to this kind of church. People who live in this sort of community. People who hold this view or vote in this way. Thank God I'm not like one of those Pharisees. Which is the exact mistake made by the Pharisee in this story. See, this story is designed to mess with our assumptions. And it plays on that universal human tendency to judge everything and everybody. We all do it. We see someone, we meet someone new, and immediately we start evaluating them in our heads. We start working on a verdict. It's not even always bad, right? Sometimes it could be like a positive judgment. We might notice that they have really nice clothes on or that they're attractive. They look like they came from money. We're still evaluating, still rendering a verdict. Could be the way they look, the way they act, the way they talk, positive or negative, the process is dehumanizing. We take a person, we take someone who is a unique individual, indwelled with like infinite worth and value by their creator, we strip all that away and we assign value. Is this a good guy or a bad guy? Is this an attractive person or an ugly person? Is this someone who thinks like me, or is this someone else? All these questions, by the way, really boil down to, what can this person do for me? What can I get from them? What value, if any, do they have for me? And that's really the original sin, isn't it? Think back to Adam and Eve in the garden, they look and they see this fruit that's pleasing for the eye, good for gaining wisdom, they take it and they eat it. They commodify it. They take an independent part of God's good creation that exists apart from them and they objectify it. And it all starts with a judgment. So Jesus plays with these stereotypes, these powerful assumptions about certain types of people. He uses these assumptions to set a trap for his audience, to set a trap for us. And then when we fall into it, we realize just how judgmental we can be. And the answer to judgmentalism, I think, one of the only ways to overcome this nasty habit is to practice the spiritual discipline of non-judgment which is probably a new one for a lot of people. The discipline of reserving judgment. I'm not talking about like reserving common sense or something like that or like failing to discern. I'm talking about reserving judgment, refusing to pass a verdict on the people we interact with day to day. To stop this process of mentally evaluating everyone we meet and instead learn to see them through God's eyes. One practice I've done over the years to try and get better at this is to simply repeat over and over in my head, this is a beloved child of God. It's effective, especially when you're talking to someone who drives you up the wall. Just keep repeating in your head, this is a beloved child of God. 
this is a beloved child of God, almost like a mantra. You'll find that like when you do that, it's kind of hard to judge them. One, because you're trying to repeat that over in your head while you hold a conversation, which is itself tricky. (laughs) But if you say that enough, you might actually start to believe it. This is a beloved child of God. Meditation, when it's done well, is also a practice that can help us build uh, non-judgment to kind of move beyond our judgmental tendencies and view people through God's eyes. That's true if you're meditating over Scripture or just trying to clear your mind for a few moments. Um, The goal is really to stop those judgmental voices. The negative feelings and emotions that are constantly judging, constantly rendering a verdict, constantly evaluating everyone and everything. If you've never walked the labyrinth here at church, I would highly encourage you to do that. This Wednesday from 7 to 8.30 p.m., we will have a giant labyrinth set up in the fellowship hall, basically like a maze of sorts on the floor. And the idea of a labyrinth is to center yourself on God's presence as you slowly walk the maze, to quiet all those voices and just be with God. If we can learn to stop judging the people in our lives, then we might learn to reserve judgment over the circumstances of our lives. The ups and the downs, the twists and turns that can destabilize and decenter us. If you've ever met like a spiritual giant, like a prayer warrior, someone who just like exudes the grace of Jesus, you've probably noticed that there is a center in their life. There's a sense in which they are not swayed by the ups and downs quite as easily. There's something that they're rooted in. No matter what comes, they stay centered on God's presence and the knowledge that they are a beloved child of God. In fact, if we can learn to practice non-judgment toward others and non-judgment toward the circumstances in our lives, then we might actually come to the point where we stop judging ourselves. Stop evaluating ourselves. Stop the competition. Stop categorizing ourselves, but come to see ourselves through God's eyes as beloved children, dependent on grace, sinful, imperfect, but loved. Let's pray. God, thank you for the Pharisee and the tax collector. Thank you for these stories that surprise us, offend us, challenge our assumptions, and awaken us to the destructive tendencies at work in our hearts. God, we ask that you'd send your grace on us. Give us security in the knowledge that we are loved by you and saved by grace. And help us to move from that knowledge, Lord, to a posture of love and grace toward others. No matter who you bring into our lives, Lord, help us to see them through Christ's eyes. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.